It's wonderful to be here with each of you this morning. I want to thank Jason for the prayer on my behalf. As always, it's, it's my hope and prayer that the things we talk about will be simple and easy to understand according to God's word and glorifying to him. This morning, the, the topic I want to consider is making abundant preparations. We think about the decisions that we have throughout our lives, and we think about a lot of the big decisions that we have to make. This morning, we'll talk about some of the big things that we need to prepare for, but I also think before we get started, it's, it's important to, to understand the importance of the little details, the little preparations, and the little decisions that we have to make. Maybe you think about growing up, thinking about what you want to do for work, for a career. I would consider that a, a pretty big decision, one that takes a level of preparation, where you want to go to college, what kind of person you want to marry. When you're about to get married, think about all the preparations and details that go into a wedding. And so we, we think about those things, but there are so many smaller decisions that build up to those things. You know, just think about coming here this morning. How did you get here this morning? Did you walk? Did you drive a car? Did you get a ride from someone? Well, where did that car come from? Who had the money to buy that car? You think about the car being manufactured and all the small details and all the small parts that go into constructing that vehicle and, 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 and give it the ability to transport people. And not just the parts, but how did people realize that those parts could work? Well, that came from some form of mathematics. Where did math come from? Well, someone thought of mathematics, I, and, and you can go all the way back to, to nothing, pretty much. Who, who first thought about mathematics and calculations and things like that? So there are so many small details that go into everyday uh, decisions that are very important. You think about what's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Do you prepare for your day physically? Do you get on your phone and scroll through social media? Do you check the weather before you go outside? Do you start your day by looking at God's word and praying to God and preparing your day on the spiritual side? All these small things can lead to these big things that we'll talk about this morning. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22 and verse number 5, we read a little bit about King David near the end of his life. Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. And in all reality, David had prepared far earlier than just before his death for this, this house of the Lord. David had always envisioned this, this great and beautiful temple where the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord could rest, where God's presence would be among his people. And that was so important to David. But David was, was assured that it would come, it just wouldn't come in his lifetime. So he knew that Solomon would be the one who would oversee this construction. And so David wanted to help prepare Solomon. And so he prepared in resources, probably in, in, in wise counsel. Not just for Solomon to construct this temple, but to lead God's people in a way in which God would be pleased. And so David saw a need for the future after he would be gone. And so your preparations and your decisions today prepare your own future and also, in some way, the future of others. Maybe uh, consider others in Scripture who needed some form of preparation 
Think about Moses helping prepare Joshua to lead the children of Israel to the land of Canaan. Moses uh, was declined the opportunity to enter in that promised land, to enter in that rest. And so he prepared Joshua by encouraging him, telling him to be strong and courageous. Think about John the Baptist to the children of Israel. The children of Israel needed to be prepared in their hearts to receive Christ. And so John came preaching about repentance, about change and changing your heart, talking about how the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It would soon come to pass that the Messiah would come and that all these changes would take place. In order for the future of God's people to be properly prepared, the individuals needed to make those preparations, and that hasn't changed today. There is a need to prepare the future of the church. There's a need today to prepare yourself for the future. So why prepare? Why make changes in our lives? Why live our lives a different way? There's three things that I want to consider this morning that God has prepared, and so in turn we must prepare as well. The first thing is that God has prepared his kingdom. In Matthew chapter 22, in verse number 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, and he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. All things are ready. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is this prepared feast, this prepared dinner. And people were invited to it. Some rejected it. They were invited again, and, and others were invited to this feast. And God has prepared his kingdom, and his kingdom reigns today. And as members of his kingdom, at some point, we were each invited to be a part of it, and we responded in some way. But understand that God has prepared his kingdom, and so we should do our part in, in, continue, in helping continue that kingdom here in this place, here in this community. And we have a role to play in preparing the future of the church. And you think about the church preparing and maybe what the church would prepare for. Uh, you know, there, there was an old location that this congregation met at, and there were, there were years of preparation to build a new building and to meet at a new location, a lot of preparation uh, financially, preparations with, with uh, how many people uh, would this place need to hold, and things of that nature. And maybe you think about what the church prepares for in the future. What are those things? Maybe we think about a lot of those, those physical things, whether it's the building or the amount of people. And so when does the work of a church end? Does it end when you move to a new location? Does it end when you reach a certain amount of members? Does it end when your bank account reaches a certain amount? The work of the church never ends. And the work of the church is so much more about the spiritual side of things and about people's souls rather than these things that are physical. There's a couple uh, pieces that I want to to think about when it comes to the church preparing for the future. So the older preparing the younger, and also the church preparing for future growth by growing closer together and preparing now. In Titus chapter 2, we read instruction from Paul to Titus on how the older men and women should be and, and the type of influence that they should have on those younger. In Titus chapter 2 and verse number 1, we read, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. 
So what are those things? What's the things that are proper for sound doctrine? That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Notice here the, the men and the women have a great responsibility in the church. In order for the older to help prepare the younger in the church, they need to have some things together. They need to live their lives in a, with a certain conduct, and they take their own preparation in order to live that way. There are changes that they need to make in their lives. As we read on in verse number four, so with this lifestyle that the older men and women live in the way they conduct themselves, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men. So there's teaching here for the older women to admonish the younger women and the older men to exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. So there's a great deal of, of preparation and life changes and choices that lead to this. There's a great understanding of our responsibility that goes in behind this. It's easy for me because I'm, I'm still very young. I'm still so young. I'm only 28. Some of you make me feel young still. Some of you are making me feel pretty old now. But we have to understand our duty and our responsibility as individuals in this congregation. If you're here this morning, there's a 99% chance that you're older than someone else here. If you're here, there's a 99% chance that you're still younger than someone else here. We have to be ready to be an example to those that we're around. To be an example to those and be a positive influence on those that may be younger than us. There's also a responsibility and a duty for us to be willing to learn and accept teaching from those that are older than us. Even you younger kids still living at home, still in school, you have a level of influence on one another. And you can use that influence for good or you can use it for evil. Now think about when I was younger and living at home in the congregation I grew up in. There was a, a much greater deal of influence that I realized uh, than I realized that I had. And I didn't always make the right decisions. I didn't always influence those around me in a good way. And so I, I look back and I regret decisions that I made. So don't let these opportunities pass by with levels of influence that you have and, and later in life think back on them and, and have regret and think well, I should have done something different. Your influence on the church begins at a much younger age than you realize. So as older men and older women, what does our influence look like? Do we have these things in our lives? Are we sober in our thinking? Are we quick to react and quick to get angry in situations? Are we sound in faith? Are we sound in doctrine? Are we sound in love and how we think about others and how we treat or, or talk about other people? And the same would go for the older women. Likewise, are you reverent in your behavior? Are you respectful in your behavior? In your behavior, are you a slanderer? Do you speak evil of others for your own gain to make yourself feel better? 
What does your influence look like this morning? Are you a positive influence? Are you preparing to be a better influence so that we can prepare the future of the church to lead a a community spiritually? There's also a need to grow closer together in preparing for the future. As a church, we are a family. As a church, we are a community of people, a community of believers. And in the past 50 to 100 years, I think our society has missed uh, ha- has lost a lot of what a community really is, how a community thrives and dwells together. Because 100 years ago, you didn't have just an abundance of clean running water. You didn't have an abundance of food so much that we waste a lot of it. You didn't have an abundance of, of great shelter or clothes. And so people depended on each other. People needed help from each other pretty consistently. But in the past 50 years, and it's been a blessing that we don't, always need help with these physical things, but we grow up never really having to ask for help for anything. And so we grow up not knowing how to ask for help, and we allow that thinking to creep into our spiritual lives. We see ourselves grow up, and and we never need anything from anyone else. We never need help. We never have to ask for help. So then when there are spiritual needs in our lives, we almost don't know how to ask for help. We're too prideful You think, well, I don't want to bother people. I don't want to bug people. I don't want to become a problem for anyone. But in order for a congregation to be able to be close together, a close, tight-knit community, we have to know how to ask for help, and we need to stir up love and good works with one another. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the church in Jerusalem was about to see everything in their lives that they had known since they were born and and since the time of their forefathers be destroyed by the Roman Empire. So this temple that had been uh, rebuilt where a lot of the items of the Old Testament, the Mosaical Law, were held, those things would be destroyed. Those things would be no more. But... The author of Hebrews this entire time in the book, the previous nine, ten chapters, has been talking about how Christ is superior to all those things, how Christ is so much better than all those things. And yes, all these things would be taken away and all these things would be destroyed, but it's okay because you have Christ and you have each other. You have the church. So the teaching was to consider each other, consider each other in order to stir up love and good works. <clears throat> and we use this verse a lot in talking about church attendance, worship assembly attendance, and, and that's all right. It's important that we gather together every time we have the opportunity, every time we can when these doors are open. We, we need to be together. We need one another, but we also need one another outside of these assemblies. We need one another outside of the public gathering. And what do you stir up when you're with other brothers and sisters in Christ. What do you talk about? What are the things that you think about? What are the things that you do? And that's a great struggle for me because I tend to stir up a lot of things that you know don't really matter, that aren't very important when I could be stirring up something better, when I could be stirring up love and good works, talking about better things, asking better detailed questions, giving better detailed responses. 
And there's an importance for us when we're together with one another, not just here, but outside the assembly in which we exhort one another, we encourage one another, we teach one another. Because there's, there's times of difficulty for all of us spiritually at different times in our lives, and you never know when you can be that critical help for someone. And so how are you preparing to do that today? Where is your heart in preparation for that today and helping the church grow closer together? Think about Acts chapter 2 and verse 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So the early church, the first century church, this is just after the day of Pentecost, which Peter uh, preached that gospel sermon, and about 3,000 souls were added. And from that point on, the church continued to grow. The church grew so well because they were such a tight-knit community. And they reached out to others. They had all things in common. They had similar goals. They had similar interests. We think about our interests and our similarities. And we have our, our friends who think the same way we do. We have friends who have similar interests that we do. And how much of that is physical? How much of that is, well, we, we like the same kind of TV shows. We like the same sports. And, and I, I do all those things. But we have greater things in common. We have greater interests than the things of this world. We have the common interest of, of Christ, of his sacrifice, of his blood, of the church, of the kingdom. And so they continued daily with each other. They were with each other all the time. They spent their time together. And you know, they, they had their responsibilities. They had their jobs. They probably worked a lot longer than we do. They had to work probably a lot harder to provide just the basic necessities for their families. But they had the same time every day that we do. But they spent their time together. And we have plenty of excuses. We have plenty of reasons not to. And it's important for us to spend time with, with our blood family, with our children, with our spouse, to continue to strengthen and build those relationships. But there's a greater calling to spend more time with, with people who share the blood of Christ. And so what are you doing today to help prepare the church for future growth? Are you doing your part in, in helping the body of Christ come closer together so that the community sees a, a group of people who really love each other, who love to be with each other? This isn't something that we can push to the side and, and say, well, someone else will do that. You know, Someone else will help this. Someone else will take care of this. Someone else will grow closer <clears throat> with everyone else. But it's something that we all must do collectively in order for the church to continue to be successful, to be successful spiritually and to reach others who were lost. So because God has prepared his kingdom, because God's kingdom reigns today, God has also is also prepared to give judgment. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who were dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So Peter is talking about 
folks that these Christians used to associate with and have similar lifestyles with, but now these people have obeyed Christ in baptism, and now they're living a very different life. Peter said that those they used to be with and those that they used to do things with would be surprised at this. They'd be amazed at this. They'd think they're crazy. And he says that these people, God is prepared to judge. God is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so in order for us to properly prepare our lives the way that we need to, we need to understand that. We need to understand that God is ready to judge. If God wanted to end everything 1,500 years ago and judge the living and the dead, God would have done it, and God was was ready to do so. God would not have made a mistake. If God wants to wait 10,000 years from now to judge the living and the dead, God can wait till then. God will be perfect. God will judge righteously. There will be no mistake. There will be no re-judgment, no second judgment. But God will do it wholly, righteously, and correctly. So the warning for these Christians was the end of all things is at hand. So be serious. Be watchful in your prayers. Prepare your hearts. Prepare your lives. The Lord's return is unknown. In 2 Peter chapter 3 In verse number three, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is the promise of his coming? It hasn't happened yet. It's been, what, 2,000 years since Jesus was here? It's been 2,000 years since uh, we've had the New Testament. Where's the promise of his coming? It's obviously not going to happen. There's something missing here. You say all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Things haven't really changed that much, so live your life the way you want to. It says that these people walk according to their own lusts, to their own desires, and they say these things. Nothing bad will happen. Live life the way you want to. But in verse number 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? This understanding of the Lord's return, whether that be Jesus' coming or our death in this life, since both of those things are really unknown to us, that should change the way you live. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You should change the way you live because you understand this, because you, you know that my, my, my death is unknown and the Lord's return is unknown. And so what are we doing in preparation for that day? Because every day is, is some step of preparation. The small decisions in your life are some step of preparation. In times of temptation, you've got a choice. You can decide to go along to commit sin. You can decide to take the way of escape God has provided, and there's preparation that goes into that decision. And so how do we prepare for this day, for the time of our death? What life are we living? Are we living in holy conduct and godliness? Time is fleeting as we live in this life. In James chapter 4, In verse 13, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So James is writing to a congregation that 
is, is struggling spiritually. They're rich. There's a lot of good, great people that they respect. They don't respect others that are maybe lower than them in society. But they trust in their riches. They have a lot of, of physical things. And James addresses this throughout his, his letter to the church. And he addresses the, so much that they, they plan in advance and, and they, they have all these future plans. But he says, what's your life? You don't know what will happen tomorrow. We don't know what's beyond right now, what's beyond the present. You know, I think about my life 14 years ago, which is half of my lifetime, and I think about how different things were 14 years ago. It's crazy to me. I had a lot less responsibilities. Sometimes I wish I had less responsibilities today. I didn't have to work full-time. I was just going to school. I was, I was just kind of living the life of a 14-year-old, living at home, getting grounded, getting in trouble. But, you know, 14 years goes by, and then, and then I have two kids, happily married, and it's like, well, 14 more years are going to go by so quick. A lot of you who have kids who are graduating and moving out of the house, you didn't think that would happen so quick. You didn't think that would happen so quick. But it's here. It's, it's, it's gone. Time is fleeting. And we don't want to wake up someday with regret in our mind and in our hearts because of a lot of opportunities that we let pass. And preparing others for the future and preparing ourselves as well. And so the warning is, is, is to beware, to take heed. Because time is fleeting, because Christ's return is unknown, our death is unknown. Back in Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So the author is pointing back to the children of Israel when they were uh, before they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, while they were receiving the commandments, the, the people fell away. The people had a heart of unbelief. They, built a, they, they constructed an idol and worshipped an idol rather than God. It says that they had an evil heart of unbelief. They departed from the living God in that way. And so his warning to this church was to exhort one another, to be strong, to strengthen, encourage one another. And he, he said, while it is called today... What's guaranteed? Is five years guaranteed from now? What about a month? Is that guaranteed for all of us? But he said today, right now, the present moment, what you're living in is guaranteed. And so use the time you have to prepare. Use the time you have to prepare yourself. Use the time you have to strengthen each other. In Hebrews 3, continuing, in verse 16, he talks about who were those that rebelled. It was those who were in Egypt. Right? It was the ones who saw the plagues, who saw the, these, these amazing things happen, but yet they still were distracted. They still reverted to their old ways and went back to idol worship. And, and he says in verse 19, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. There was a rest that was promised for them. There was a land that was promised to them if they would obey, but they did not obey. And so they could not enter. They did not enter. And so the warning for the Christians in Jerusalem in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1 was, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Since we have a promise, 
of entering rest that God has guaranteed us if we're obedient, we need to fear. Lest we, we live a life that we want to and, and we don't think that there are real consequences for our decisions. We need the fear. Not a fear in which keeps us from doing anything that causes us to freeze and stay in place, but a fear that propels us to prepare for eternity. A fear that propels us to make changes, to live holier, godlier lives, not so that we can look at ourselves and say how good we are, but we point to God and glorify God and give credit to God for changing our lives. So there is a great uh, a great necessity for us to prepare individually, to prepare and, and live our lives in a certain way. And if you're like me, maybe you think about all these things, and we've talked about preparing the church for the future and, li- and living holy, godly lives and being an example to those around us. It seems like too much at times. It seems like an awful lot. And I look at myself and I say, well, I've got a lot of problems. Where do I start? What do I do? And when I think about something that requires great preparation, I think about a big test, a big test in in college or afterwards, and I think about all the study that goes into that. I was never a good test taker. I just didn't want to take the the necessary time to study and prepare myself for everything I would need to know. And if there was a shortcut, I would have taken it. If I could have just slept on my books the night before and gained all the knowledge I needed to, I would have done it. Heard it didn't work, so I didn't try it. Maybe I should have. But I think, man, if there was, if there was any other way, I would do it than, than study. Now, there is a need for us to live our lives in a godly, holy way. But God has prepared something for us. God has prepared salvation for you. God has prepared salvation for everyone. God has prepared that for your neighbor for the other kids in your class. God has prepared that for your coworker. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number five. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number five. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come. In the volume of the book, it is written to me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the psalm, uh, this is a psalm that's being quoted by the author, and it's from Psalm chapter 40, if you're interested in that. This is a psalm that David wrote, and it ended up being a, a, a prophetical psalm. A body you have prepared for me. So God had prepared a body for Jesus to be in. That was a body of a baby at first, in the womb, unborn. That body then prepared to grow. It grew, it, it was born, it was a baby, and then it grew and it was a, a toddler. It grew into a young man, it grew to a grown adult man. But more importantly, that body was prepared to be a sacrifice. That body was prepared. 
And in verse number 10, it says, by that will, we have been sanctified. Whose will was it? It was God's will. Verse number nine, he said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. That was uh, referring to Jesus. Jesus said, I've come to perform your will. And it's through that will of God that those who are washed, those who are baptized in the blood of Jesus Christ are sanctified, are cleansed, and are set apart from the world. And it's because of that we can properly prepare for eternity. It's not anything of our own merit. It's not anything of our own good works or our own righteousness. Our own righteousness is, is nothing, but the righteousness of Christ is perfect. And that's been prepared as your salvation. That's been prepared as the salvation for other people as well. This was no accident that all this occurred, that all this took place. In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, <clears throat> according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. There's a lot going on here, but God had known his plan before the foundation of the world. It was a part of God's will that those who obeyed Christ in baptism that those who were forgiven through his blood, that they would be adopted as sons, that they would be adopted as children, and that those would be referred to as those chosen by God, those who obeyed Jesus Christ in baptism. And this was a plan that God had set before the world was even created, before the foundation of the world. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, through the sacrifice, we have forgiveness if we obey. How do we go about that? What do we do? Is there anything we can do? In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, there's also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so in the previous verses, it talks about how Noah and his family were saved by water. God had told Noah to build this great ark to hold his family, to hold all these animals in. And when God flooded the earth and destroyed the earth and everything in it, God in that way cleansed Noah, cleansed the world. And he says there's also an antitype, there's also an antidote to this poison of sin, which now saves us. It's the way, and that's baptism. Baptism, the immersion of a person into the water. And it's not the, the water necessarily. It's not the water that has the power, but it's the power of God. And it's the power of Christ's blood that removes your sins. Without obeying God, without obeying Christ in baptism, there is no way for our, our souls to be cleansed. And there is no way that we can properly prepare for eternity. That's the only way to God is through Jesus Christ and through his death, burial, 
and resurrection. So today, what are you preparing for? What decisions are you making in your life? That, in, in what way do they lead you? You know, there will come a time, as we've mentioned, whether it's Christ's return or death, there will be a time where we have no more decisions to make. There is no more opportunity for us to, to change our lives. We can't go back and say, well, if I can go back right quick, let me, let me do some things different. There won't be that opportunity. There won't be that time. And we'll be prepared for one of two destinations, for a destination of peace, a destination in God's presence for eternity. No suffering, no sorrow. There's a destination of eternal destruction, of eternal pain and suffering and separation from God. And so have you prepared your soul for eternity? And the answer is yes, we're prepared for one or the other. But which side are you preparing for? We've mentioned baptism this morning, but Colossians chapter 2 gives great insight on what happens during baptism. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, In him you were also circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And so this, this baptism is how we prepare for eternity by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. And it's not us who does that. It's not our power that does that. It says it's the circumcision of Christ. It's the work of Christ that puts off the body of the sins of the flesh. And that happens in verse number 12 when you are buried with him in baptism. When you're buried, your old flesh is removed, your sinful self is removed. And when you're raised, it says you're raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You're raised anew. You're raised as Christ was raised from the dead. You're a new creature. You're a new creation. More importantly, you're a clean creature. You've been sanctified. You've been washed. You've been set apart from the world because of the sacrifice of Christ and because it was Christ's will to do God's will. And he makes us alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, every single one. There's nothing you can do that God won't forgive. God's power is that powerful, that he will forgive you of all trespasses if you obey and if you are baptized. And we think about all the examples in the book of, of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And when they were preaching this gospel, this new teaching, and they're preaching Christ to others, the, the audience responded in, in some different ways, but they believed in the words that they were saying. They repented. They made changes in their lives. They confessed that Christ was truly the Son of God, that he lived, and that he did these things, and that he died on the cross and was resurrected, and they were all baptized. They were all baptized for the remission of sins. And if you haven't made that step this morning, then you're not prepared for eternal rest. You're not prepared for eternity with God. 
So consider that this morning. If you have not done so, why wait? Why put it off? The future isn't guaranteed, but the present today is guaranteed. If you make that choice, it will be the greatest decision of your life, the best choice of your life. Because you're forgiven, and you're made anew, and you're made alive together with Christ. Maybe you're here, and, and you have been baptized, and you are a part of the church. But maybe your Christian life isn't where it needs to be. Maybe you feel your Christian life has, has been on, on cruise control. There hasn't been adjustments made. There hasn't been made uh, any changes made along the way. <clears throat> Jesus described a couple paths of life in Matthew chapter 7. In verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way, which leads to life, and there are few who find it. There's a, there's a wide, easy path of life, one without too much great difficulty, one, that, one that's lived in, in, in the pleasures of sin, a life that's easy. But there's a difficult life. There's a narrow path, one in which you, you've got to make adjustments. You've got to make changes. And that's described as the path that leads to life, the Christian life, a life in which your sins are forgiven. And I think about paths, and, and I think about roads and, and where we drive. And it's so easy driving out here. There's no obstructions to your view. Most of the roads are pretty straight. It's flat. You can set your cruise on 90, and you're good to go for the most part. But when you get to New Mexico, you can't just have your cruise on 90, and you're driving in the mountains. You're going to crash into a mountain, or you'll drive off a cliff. You'll hit a tree. You'll hit something. But you've got to hit the brakes. You've got to turn the wheel. You've got to steer. You've got to make adjustments. And our Christian lives are similar. We can't, we can't just cruise through life. We can't just go with the flow every, every single day. We've got to make changes. We've got to adjust. We've got to prepare ourselves by living holy, godly lives. And the only way that is possible in the first place is that, as we've mentioned, God has prepared the salvation for us. God has prepared a way in which your sins can be forgiven. In Luke chapter 9 and 62, Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. A great lie that's, that's been spread through, through the world and, and a little bit through time is that the Christian life is not one of work. But Jesus described it as putting your hand to a plow. What do you do with the plow? Do you set it aside? Do you put it in your shed and just leave it and say, Well, the work's going to get done somehow. Someone else is going to do it. It's never going to get done. But Jesus described following him as putting your hand to the plow and, and going to work. And so understand and consider, consider your life this morning. Consider the way it's been lived. Whether or not you've made adjustments and whether or not you've been living it for service in the kingdom of God. And so this morning, as we extend the invitation, think about these things. Have you prepared your soul by being baptized in the blood of Jesus Christ? We can help you with that today. We have water that's available. We have a change of clothes that you can borrow, that you can use, so that your sins can be forgiven, so that you can obey Christ in baptism. And are you doing your part in the church today? Are you influencing the younger to strive for godly lives? Have you done your part in bringing the community of Christ closer together and preparing the church for the future? Do you need help with that? Do you need some encouragement? Do you need some strength from those here today?
there's one of either case, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.